Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 60 of Life and Lessons. In this week's episode, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Ryan Merton. Ryan is the Director of Organic Acquisition at Bumble, and before that, he spent almost 10 years working in marketing for some of the biggest and the best-known bookmakers out there, people like Paddy Power, Betfair, and Skybet. Ryan has a really interesting story and some insights that you won't quite believe. In the next hour, you're going to learn exactly how gambling companies win new customers and what to look out for if you're thinking of placing a bet. Why somebody who has won literally hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bets would quit gambling cold turkey. Ryan's decision-making process, which has led him to make correct predictions about countless events, including the past seven major political results. What the world of online dating is going to look like as things start to get back to normal and so much more. This conversation was fascinating to be a part of, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy it just as much as I did. Uh, Make sure that you stick around until the end, because I ask Ryan to make free predictions about some fairly big events that we have coming our way, and I promise you, you don't want to miss his answers. But just before then, if you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. There are a bunch more conversations just like this one coming your way this year, and I don't want you to miss them. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 60 of Life and Lessons with Ryan Merton. So Ryan, we've never met before, but we've known each other for quite a while through Twitter because I think we both used Twitter back in the days in like 2010, 2011, where it was actually a useful tool where you could meet people and not just shout at each other. And although we have never met in person, I feel like I know you quite well. And I think one of the key reasons for that is because about five or six years ago, you did me a big favor and you might not know that you did me this favor, but you did. So we jumped on a call. Uh, my business at the time, Magnate, was looking to raise investment for a new digital product that we were building. And I basically tweeted, can anybody give us advice on how to raise investment? Because we didn't know what we were doing in that sense. And you agreed to jump on a quick Skype call with me. And you sat there patiently, you listened about the business, and you gave us some some useful advice about how to improve the product and how to go about getting that investment. But it was what you did after that that was most useful for me. You essentially said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you essentially said, Sean, you're about to go into the adult world of business. Like you've had a few businesses in the past, but if you really pull off raising investment, you're going to need to grow up quickly. And growing up quickly in a professional sense, I know now from our conversation is something that you had to do when you were 19 and you moved to Dublin on your own to take a very big job. But before we go into that, give me a a summary of the 19 years before you moved to Dublin. Talk to me about how you grew up. Yes, sure. So ultimately I would say I was never academically gifted I remember from my time in school I was always in top sets for every subject and I was predicted um, you know A stars to B's for every subject Um, but from memory um, when I was through in my teenage years I didn't really um, have the effort in me I enjoyed spending more time with my friends than being uh, you know good at school Um, but I always know I had 
I always knew I had the ability simply because when I was 15, 16, I was more interested in inflation and mortgage rates than I was about learning French or science. Um, so at the time, I, I knew, I think, that I had some kind of ability. I just didn't know what it was. Um, however, I, I was very certain that I didn't want further education. I knew that I definitely did not want college or university, but I did not know what career path I wanted either. Um, so from, from memory, that is kind of what happened. Um, in my GCSEs, I achieved eight Cs, so I just about scraped through, uh, but that was with zero revision. That was with zero effort, really. Um, so I guess I, I bragged through school. Um, and our, our school at the time in Burnley was in the bottom 100 in the country. Um, so I, I wouldn't say we, we were gifted with a good education either. Uh, we used to have uh, race riots in, in the school, unfortunately, due to racial tensions in Burnley at the time. Um, we had teachers' uh, attendance drop to around 40% and pupil attendance dropped to around 50% because there was fighting every lunchtime um, and people were scared to go to school. So you could say we had a very turbulent two years in our GCSE years as well. Um, but in terms of after school, I, I went to the local job centre and I said, I want a job. And they said, okay, we have a sales role available in a call center selling um, online marketing, advertising. And I was like, okay, I don't know what that is, but um, I'll give it a go. Um, and I went for the interview. I got the role. And it turned out to be for a, a small marketing agency selling uh, banner advertising on an old search engine called Lycos, which um, I'm sure all the listeners will know. Um, and it turned out I was quite good at sales, um, and I was selling paid search and banner advertising at the time, um, and after about a year, I got told um, that there was this kind of service called SEO. Would I like to sell that? It is more complex, um, but would I like to do it? And I said yes, and after around six months of that, um, I ended up thinking to myself, I quite like what I'm talking about here, so maybe I'll start reading about what it actually is myself rather than generating leads for consultants to take over from me to then do the SEO I started reading about it myself to see if I could do it myself um, and from there I kind of developed yeah so just to pick up on a theme of those first 18 19 years of your life which is quite interesting you said about being more interested in inflation rates in mortgages and you also said that in that first role you self-taught yourself a lot of how to do the service delivery whilst you weren't particularly applied in school where do you think the drive to teach yourself things came from? Can you point to anything in your past and say that it was it was at this moment that I decided that if I'm going to leave this situation, if I'm going to leave a small town where there are huge tensions, where the education isn't great, where the local job centre will point me in the direction of one job without really thinking about my needs, was there ever actually a waking up moment where you thought, I'm going to have to teach myself something if I'm getting out of here? Um, I wouldn't say there was a particular point, but what I would say is that always through my teen years and through the kind of roles I had from 16 to 19, which was selling um, digital marketing services for a, a couple of different agencies in the northwest of England, um, I would say that when I was encountering colleagues that maybe had 10 years experience and I had a year or two, I was thinking to myself, um, I don't learn much from these people. Um, in terms of overall aspirations, coming from a very working class family, my mum and dad had me um, when they were quite young. Um, I think they were 21. Um, my mum was a cleaner, my dad was a labourer. Um, you know, we, we struggled when I was very young as a family. Um, and I think that has taught me to kind of respect everything you have and to 
to wave every day as it's your last, that, that kind of mentality. Um, but generally, f- coming from Burnley, it's a very uh, working-class town, but it's a very deprived place as well. So I, I think I always had aspirations to try and do better than what Burnley could offer, um, but I wouldn't say there was one defining moment. It was just an accumulation of experience, talking to people outside of Burnley, maybe speaking to teachers, and they would say, you know, there's some uh, good jobs available in cities, there's good jobs available um, in the world. Um so yeah, I, I don't think it was one defining moment, but I think it was an accumulation, really. So let's talk about that day that you left Burnley. You left to work for Paddy Power in Dublin, is that right? Yes, exactly. And so two questions, I guess. Number one, how did you discover the role? But then far more interestingly, number two, talk me through, if you can remember them, your feelings on that day when you were 19 years old, you were leaving uh, not only your town, but your country essentially to go and live abroad as a teenager with a new job with new surroundings how did you feel um so this is this is quite funny but um at at the time i got approached on linkedin by a recruiter who worked for a gambling industry uh recruitment firm um that i think he was in malta and he was recruiting for paddy power i'd heard of paddy power but at the time you know they were quite small they didn't have many shops um i i think they were only just getting going in the uk um, but th- this recruiter called Anthony, who now ironically uh, does work in the gambling industry, I believe now he's at a company called Lotto Land, and previously he actually did join Betfair as well when I was in Betfair, um, and he placed me at Betfair, which is after Paddy Power, um, so it's a very small world, especially the gambling industry, um, but I was commuting two hours each way to a role in Manchester at the time, uh, I think I'd just turned 19, and I had a call from a LinkedIn recruiter, um, he said, we've seen that you can do SEO because at the time I had a LinkedIn recommendation from somebody at triple who were a client of ours that I brought on board to this small agency I work for. Um, and I remember kind of going to my parents and saying, by the way, I have an interview um, in Dublin at a company called Paddy Power. They're going to pay for my flights and my hotel. Um, I'm going next week. And my parents just said, okay, like we have no idea where this has come from, but okay. Um, I went, uh, it was great. They offered me the job, I think, the day after. And I said to my parents uh, the day after, I said, um, yeah, I'm moving to Dublin. And my parents were absolutely terrified because they said, you've never done your own washing before. You've never cooked your own meal. Kind of the, you know, becoming an adult tasks. I'd never done them because I was still living with my, my mum and dad and I was still a teenager. So my weekends were spent with friends away from my mum and dad. I, I never really saw them on the weekends. Um, so it was very interesting. And um, my mum and dad were terrified because they thought, he has no chance of surviving by himself. Um, and they dropped me at Liverpool Airport. I jumped on the plane. I've never looked back since, really. Amazing. So in terms of feelings at the time, um, certainly mixed. But but I knew it was the right decision. I, I was dreading m- missing my friends from Burnley. I had a very good wife. I had a very good social wife. Uh, but career-wise, I, I knew I wanted more. And I knew this was my opportunity to go to a capital city to join a company that was just about to enter the foot 250. Um, I, I just knew it was the right decision on gut instinct. Um, and it turned out to be the right decision, yeah. I want to pick up on something you said about having to grow up quickly because I recently had a conversation with Andrew Tyndall and he was trying to sell me the benefits of going to university because everybody knows my views on university are that of it's not great value for money but I've always looked at it from a purely academic point of view I don't think that a degree is worth what you pay for it but Andrew said something interesting that aligns with what you just described which is that in his eyes the real benefit of going to university is leaving a small hometown 
and having to become an adult almost overnight, having to learn the value of money, having to manage your own time, having to do your own washing, cooking, cleaning, all of those things. What was it like to do that, but without the structure of university? Does that make sense? Because yeah, in university, um, you almost have still some sort of safety net. You took a step further and you had nothing. Yeah, so so obviously, you know, using an example from the Northwest, so if we take the small towns from around Burnley, in and around Burnley, um, Burnley, Accrington, Blackburn, you know, everybody at kind of 18 years old from, from around there may go to Manchester and they all move into the same uh, quarters and, you know, they live together. So I understand the, the structure sounds great and that is something I still think to myself now, did I miss out on that opportunity to mix with people at that age of, you know, becoming a, a, a real adult, shall we say, um, and having to do your own washing and cook your own food. Um, but I, I think Andrew has a very valid point, but I think it's a very expensive um, kind of price to pay. If, if we look at uh, roles available to graduates nowadays, you know, they, they are dwindling slowly. Um, I think a lot of degree subjects are questionable as well. I think I think that is the issue. So I think a degree in a STEM subject certainly has its worth with the graduate roles available and also with, um, you know, the, the opportunity it brings for furthering your career in your 30s and 40s, um, where I think some of the subjects that are available now are pretty much worthless. When you are looking for a role, that degree is not going to get you in the door for any kind of role, really. Hence why you may end up working at Tesco or Asda instead, which is, you know, what happens. Um, so I think to get yourself tens of thousands in debt for that life experience of I met some people in a similar situation, I think that can be done in another way, which is by getting a job at 16, 17, 18 um, and kind of moving out from your parents. I think moving out from your parents, even if you live by yourself and get your own small flat that you rent, you still learn to become independent. And I think it's that independence which is probably more important than having to meet other people in the same scenario. I think having that ability to have your independence is more important than having that, that social circle because social circles come in different ways outside of university, whether that be through work, online, friends of friends, so... So in those first few months of that independence, what did you learn about yourself? Um, I learned that I was good with my own time, really. Um, I'm quite independent anyway. I, I can happily um, spend the weekend on my own if I, I don't have anything on. Um, I enjoy watching football, so football takes a lot of time. Um, you know, I enjoy gaming, or I used to, especially back then. Um, but in Dublin, when I first moved into my first house share, when I got there, on the I think the second day of living there, uh, Paddy Power put me up in a hotel and I had to uh, find somewhere to live. I find somewhere very quickly, but the, the three guys I moved in with were all Irish guys in their 30s. So I straight away thought to myself, wow, I really need to grow up very quickly here, simply because they, they at the time to me, were, you know, these are fully grown men and they live in with this teenager that they may define as like a, a student. And I had to like acclimatize to that very, very quickly. Let's talk about your first few days in Paddy Power because not only were you a young person in an older person's environment at home, but you were also stepping into an industry that you were just about old enough to be a service user of yourself. Uh, were you taken seriously? Did you have to change the way you act, behave, speak, all of those kind of things? Um, you know what? I, I would give kudos to, to my former colleagues. Um, I would say the respect was great from day one, simply because I think my job title at the time was SEO specialist. That genuinely was my uh, job title. And I was brought in for a reason because SEO in gambling is very competitive. And because I had the experience of doing it for AAA.com, 
um, who had very great good results at the time uh, Paddy Power knew that I knew the kind of tactics to get them page one for terms like poker and bingo and casino and roulettes um, so I think I think I gained the respect I've definitely suffered from some forms of age discrimination in workplaces um, over the years for sure um, but at the time Paddy Power I, it was very young team anyway um, but Everyone was in there, you know, 22, 23, 24, as opposed to 19, which those five years difference that early in your career is huge versus five years when you're maybe in your 30s and 40s. It doesn't really matter. But in that early stage career for anybody, I think the difference between, you know, this executive level to manager to senior manager, it it does take many years to earn your stripes, so to speak. Um, So, yeah, I I think the respect was there. But there was definitely some people that would maybe not take you seriously. But generally, on the whole, um, I think I gained respect from senior management very quickly. Uh, We achieved some, uh, you know, pretty impressive results pretty quickly as well, ranking for very competitive phrases, which made them uh, have a lot of money. So, yeah. Throughout that career, you worked for Paddy Power. You did work with 888. Yes, right? yeah. Um, you worked for Betfair, OddsChecker. You've been very much inside the world of gambling. Talk to me about how gambling companies go about winning customers. What is the either the psychology or just the general approach to taking somebody who perhaps is looking to place a bet immediately or perhaps somebody who doesn't yet know that they want to spontaneously place a bet? Sure. So I, I mean, one of the, the kind of uh, answer that will come to top of mind of most people, even people outside the industry, would be the welcome bonuses, the welcome offers. So obviously, bet 10, get 30, bet 5, get 20. Um, these offers get you through the door and it gets that registration, it gets that first deposit. And then it's down to the kind of aha moment or the wow moment for the bookmaker to kind of drive that share of wallet. Um, so in the last few years, um, branding and share of wallets and retention mechanisms is more important to the bookmakers than acquisition, simply because there are so many bookmakers available now. And the if we say from a product perspective, back in my party power days, um, you know, mobile gaming was still quite new and a lot of companies didn't even have native apps in the App Store or the Google Play Store. I mean, the Google Play Store, you couldn't have apps in there anyway because of a Google policy. Uh, but if we just stick to iOS, for example, um, a lot of the big brands that we all know, 365, Paddy Power, Bet Victor, a lot of them didn't have apps. If they did, they weren't very good. Now I would say, obviously, the bar is a lot higher. Um, the vast majority of the big UK gambling brands have very good products. Um, so it's now about how do that they drive that share of wallet. So now retention bonuses are big. So whether that be money back if you lose one leg of your accumulator, whether it be money back if your horse falls at the last hurdle, um, you know, there, there's different ways. But in terms of the, the psychology, you know, um, the, the colours of a brand can work, the, the pull factor, how cool a brand is. You know, Paddy Power built their brand on humour um, and kind of money-back specials. So they, and early payouts was also a kind of mechanic they've done a lot of as well. So they will pay out on, you know, Liverpool to win the league at Christmas if Liverpool were so far ahead um, that they deem it as very unlikely that anyone's going to catch them up. Um, so, yeah, the industry has diversified a lot in the last few years. A friend of mine once worked for a commercial team at Google on the uh, like large corporate ads accounts, and he didn't work in the gaming gambling uh, team himself, but he would tell me stories of, I think it was the Grand National Weekend, where the cost per click bids 
for first-time deposit customers on Google for these brands to win customers through Google was in the the hundreds of pounds. Does that sound familiar? And if so, if it is a lot of money being spent to acquire a customer who's putting on a £10 bet, can you explain to me the, the economics of how that trickles down? How does 10 customers who are acquired for, say, £1,000 between them, but only deposit, say, a fiver each first time around, how, how do bookmakers find and keep the whales, if you want to call it that? Um, so, again, VIP kind of practices and VIP teams is what is being cracked down massively by the government and the Gambling Commission. Um, so there is cases where uh, VIP teams previously in certain companies, you know, they will reach out to someone that gambles 10 grand a week um, and they know they can't afford it. And they will say to them, if you gamble another 10 grand this week, we'll give you free tickets, box tickets to an Arsenal match. Um, there has been cases of this and there now are, even this year, companies that are being fined by the Gambling Commission for individual cases where they have gone out and set out f- for them to get problem gamblers to deposit even more, even though they know that that person is in uh, severe debt. In in terms of poi values, the Grand National historically is um, very low poi values. Um, a lot of the companies actually, a lot of brands turn off their registration on the day of the Grand National because Grand National customers are known as you know, one day wonders, they, they come and deposit five pounds and will never ever come back. And it actually costs the bookmaker more for the bonus than what they will ever yield from that customer in positive revenue. So um, whereas the Cheltenham Festival is a little bit different, that's a four day festival, is a lot more serious. Where the Grand National, I believe, a stat I've read before is that half the country watched the Grand National, um, you know, around 25, 30 million marks. So the Grand National is, you know, everybody will bet it regardless of whether you're into gambling or not, just because it's a, kind of a, a national day, shall we say. Um, you know, it's like tradition for some families, for certain people in families, so they'll make the rest of their family watch it. Um, but in terms of the CPC values, casino terms like casino, uh, online casino, roulette, cost per clicks and Google Ads can definitely reach £140 I've seen in the past, definitely. Wow. Wow. Um, so you need very good conversion rates to get your return there. Uh, but that is why... In the gambling industry in the last few years, affiliates, so paid search affiliates, have actually started dominating as opposed to individual brands. So if we say 32 Red and Paddy Pal Casino used to do their own paid search in the casino uh, niche for terms like roulette and blackjack, um, in the last five, six, seven years, a lot of Israeli-based affiliates, companies such as Natural Intelligence, these are some of the biggest spenders on Google Ads in the world, they actually dominate the search results for terms like casino roulette free bet because they actually convert better and they can they optimize campaigns better so they yield better play values um, and that means that the brands themselves cannot uh, afford that auction to appear there so they have to go with the affiliate instead um, so it's a very interesting industry um, but because these cpcs are so expensive these affiliates charge very expensive cpas as well you know in casino um, UK casino, you can definitely pay CPAs of five, six, seven hundred pounds to these paid affiliates, which is quite incredible, right? Talk to me about your journey with gambling. Um, so I'm I'm a gambler. Um, I was a gambler. Sorry, um, I used to gamble quite a lot. So I generally was a profitable gambler if I stuck to football matches, for example, that I knew. Um, however, over the years, I discovered that I couldn't just gamble on the games that I was watching so maybe the Champions League game I choose on a Wednesday night 
I would say that team is going to win, bet on that team and win. But then afterwards, I would actually bet on a, a match at 10 p.m. that I knew nothing about that was in um, Chile. And I want to have a clue about any of the teams, but I would bet just for the sake of it. Um, so my winnings, I would never withdraw. I would just have this continuation in my head of I just have to gamble. Um, and I guess it shows me that gambling is very dangerous and it is an addiction, definitely. Um, I'm thankful that I never gambled money that I couldn't afford to lose. Um, however, I always gamble because I love watching football, for example. That is my number one passion, my number one hobby. And I always felt that to enjoy the football game, I had to have a bet on the game as well because it gets your heart racing more than if you're watching it as a neutral. If I'm watching Tottenham versus Manchester United, those are two teams I don't support. So as a neutral, a good goal can make you happy, um, but having a bet on it would make me want a certain outcome. Um, however, that just doesn't work because gambling is addictive. And eventually I decided last year on Boxing Day to self-exclude from all websites. I used a website called GamStop, and GamStop is a charity that is set up and connected with all UK bookmakers and casino sites and bingo sites, poker, all forms of gambling. Um, GamStop is a service where if you register on GamStop for self-exclusion, this then blocks you from registering and being able to place a bet on any gambling site in the UK. Um, and the, at the back end of last year, I decided to do that, and I've not had a bet since. So it's been just under a year, um, and I've never had a bet since. What was your last bet? Um, I think it was a horse on Boxing Day. Did it win? And it did win, yeah. <laughs> it did win. Um, you, you see, if, if I stick to... like My issue was I always wanted more mm. because I would gamble for the thrill as opposed to the actual winnings. I It's a very strange scenario, but I never actually cared about the, the money if I won because I would happily i would have weeks where i would be ten thousand pounds up and people you know some of my friends would say that's like life changing money like if i had that that would change my life i'd be like i really don't care i'd be like that could be gone by in two days time and i just not care so gambling for me was for the thrill it wasn't for the actual money which i know sounds very ironic but it was the case and eventually you know towards the end of last year after advice from friends and some friends saying like the amounts you gamble is ridiculous you have to stop doing that because if you actually saved instead you know you'd just be so much better off in, what in were life the amounts in your estimation if you're happy to say how much do you reckon you've deposited over the years oh i, I have no idea but it would be i could gamble thousands a week no no problem at, at all i could gamble thousands of thousands a week easily um you know and i would have some weeks where i could be up i i think i've shared on twitter before some uh you know i can win uh, 15 grand off 250 quid and i that 15 grand though would be gone in a week because again i would gamble because of the thrill so i just gamble on games for the week after um a thousand pound stake on a first goal scorer which the vast majority of recreational or serious betters anybody really would say that's insane because first goal scorer is effectively like a lottery how can you predict which one of the 22 players is going to score first and then the odds on the players that do score the most often are not very generous anyway. Um, so yeah, it was for the thrill and not for the money. So then I realised that all I'm doing here is losing money. I'm, I'm not actually gaining money. So, and it, it's an addiction that you just need to break because eventually it may get worse. So 
yeah, I decided enough is enough, and um, I took action. And um, I now enjoy football matches more than ever because I watch them as a neutral, and I enjoy football for what it is, which is a, um, the beautiful game, as I would call it. But um, that's why I now enjoy football more as a sport and a spectacle as opposed to worrying about whether a bet is going to win or lose. Those weeks where you're £15,000 up or £15,000 down, you talk about the thrill, the the uncertainty in the moment before a bet does or doesn't come in. Did you have the same feeling of contentment, for want of a better word? It's probably not the right word, but did you have the same feeling whether you were up 15k or down 15k? Did it, did it feel the same or were there moments where if you were down you thought, oh shit? Um, I would never think, oh shit, simply because I, I did gamble money I could afford to lose, which is, I think, very important. Um, but in terms of feeling deflated, because maybe uh, a last minute goal had cost me 15 grand, um, you know, or maybe the potential to win 15 grand and a goal, an equaliser cost me the, the chance of winning that. Um, my, my feelings of being disappointed would actually not last that long they'd only really last on that day i would say maybe in the morning when i've woken up for for an hour or two but very quickly uh, the issue and again this is why i identified you know i i have a pretty bad is- issue here is um when it got to the stage of that losing 15 grand last night would not bother me all i'd focus on is the day after which matches the next you know that that is the situation i was getting into so when i had friends that you know, see that, and I would tell or show that um, I'd be 15 grand up and they'd say, you know, that money would change my life, as I said earlier. Um, I was just like, yeah, I don't care. I'm just going to gamble it, you know. So I never appreciated the winnings ever. So what was the point, you know? Mm. But in terms of feeling disappointed, it would not last long. It would only last until the day after, which is, I think, is the danger because you have no concept of what you're really doing. Um, So eventually I decided... I need to realise what I'm doing, so um, I quit, which I'm kind of proud of myself, actually. Um, but it was because of a couple of select good friends said to me, you know, you need to stop this because I, I just think it's going to get worse and um, I think it could end up getting dangerous. And um, I said, yeah, I agree. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy for it, really. If it wasn't for those friends, although I'm sure you would have made the right decision yourself, during your entire time gambling... Did any bookmaker ever reach out to you um, because of the volumes of money you were moving and just make sure that, I know you say you could afford it, but did they know that? Does that make sense? Did they ever reach out and say, we just want to check that you're not a problem gambler? And if not, do you think that there's a, a moral issue there for want of a better word? Um, yeah, so K- KYC is what, know your customer is what uh, they would call it internally. Um, I can't say from memory I ever remember kind of getting... Um, uh, an email or a phone call from any bookmaker saying, um, can we just see where you're getting these funds from? I would get emails offering me VIP schemes and like more lucrative bonuses if I gambled more, which is what is now being hammered down massively on. Um, but I think, I, from memory, I can't remember ever getting an email saying, can you tell us where this is coming from? Which is what is a big concern because people are, you know, using their monthly pay packets to then gamble in the first week of them getting paid on the 25th of a month and then they're living off a credit card or their overdraft which then accumulates over a six-month period and then by the end of six months you're maxed out on your overdraft or your credit cards and that is what the government is looking at and the gambling commission are looking at so i think that is why bookmakers are being pushed very hard to identify sources of income so that they can then say is this money genuine 
from an anti-money laundering perspective, which I think most bookmakers have been very good at AML anyway, um, or certainly a lot of them have big teams that focus on this, um, so they should be good at it. But in terms of identifying sources of income, bookmakers are now asking customers for their bank statements to see that they are being paid monthly from an employer and that the money isn't coming in from cash deposits or, you know, sketchy bank transfers. If it's a bank account that shows they get one payment in a month on the 25th of every month, then, and they're gambling 500 a month, and they're on a 100K salary, then the bookmaker may go, okay, that person can afford to lose 500 a month because it's a small percentage of their income. Do you ever wonder what percentage of those who your work has directly brought on board for bookmakers go on to be problem gamblers and do you ever i wouldn't say sit and think about it because who sits and thinks about that stuff but do you know what i mean is it it's almost like your professional life for so many years ended up being fundamentally at odds with your personal view for one of a better word of the gambling industry i'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on uh, the number of people you brought into an industry that you then personally turned your back on um so so through the years i, I marketing kind of regulation in the gambling industry has always been you have to be recreational and entertainment purpose driven as opposed to problem trying to hook problem gamblers um i I do think it's um something that can be improved upon um but i i always think marketing in a lot of industries can be improved upon always uh because you could say the same for alcohol or cigarettes you know Uh, there's many industries that have that kind of taboo um i think is you have to identify in between the kind of recreation and entertainment side of a of a gambler versus a problem gambler, and that is that fine line that the gambling commission is looking at, and I don't think there's ever going to be a magic answer. So even the review next year will come with all these answers. You, somebody that has a good salary and can afford to gamble, is still going to get the approval to gamble. You know, if it's within their means, but that money may be stopping them from ever buying a house. It may be stopping them from. Um, you know, being happy with, with whatever they want to do with that money. So, um, yeah, it's it's a good question, very good question. But it's that fine line between recreational gambler and entertainment purposes, which is what gambling should be and only be in any circumstance versus a problem gambler that, you know, shows signs of refusing to go out with their friends because they prefer to gamble or being out with friends and being, um, you know, taken aside by their phone because they're checking the result of a football match over and over again. Um, there, there are bad signs of addiction, of many addictions, whether that be drugs or whether that be gambling. Um, but th- there's signs to look out for, definitely. Do you think regulation will help? Or do you think it will push those who are determined to spend their money through some sort of gambling mechanism into less regulated waters, whatever that might be? I hear this argument a lot with, I can't think of an example, but any sort of regulation. I always hear the argument that whilst regulation is good, it often just pushes the problem into darker alleys, you know? Yeah, so so in, in the gambling industry in a lot of countries, you have different regulation laws, and, you know, some gambling can be taxed, some isn't taxed, um, some countries it's illegal because of governments or religion, or, you know, there's always many reasons. Um, in the UK, there is a danger that if the regulation gets too strict, there is going to be a, a new unregulated black market that appears. Um, you know, it already exists in a small kind of scenario but if you go to google and search um gamstop um self-excluded betting sites there are affiliate websites in the gambling industry that target those search terms i mean 
the, these sites are the lowest of the law, right? But these sites have sites on there that you can register on and use if you're in the UK um, and you're a part of GamStop that you can get around it. Um, they are very seedy websites. I mean, you know, if you put money in there, you're never going to get that money back, whether you win uh, you win or you don't bet. If you deposit 50 pounds and you try to withdraw the 50, you're never going to get it back because these sites are very, very seedy and you you know, they, they don't have apps. They Their customer support is an email address and it says we take seven working days to get back to you. It, it's um, But but the danger is people will shift to that kind of industry. So we, we do have to be very, very careful, yeah. A big part of betting and a big part of what I know you for, to be honest, is predictions. Now, you seem to be incredible at making predictions. Um, off the top of my head, politics you seem to be very good at calling the results of referendums of uh, general elections sports although i don't follow any sports personally i a hobby of mine is to see a prediction of yours on twitter and then a few hours later google it to see what happened and very often it becomes true and then more recently you and i had a conversation about investing in the stock markets and i showed you my incredibly undiverse portfolio of boohoo shares and you sent me a list of companies that you had invested in and explained to me the reasons that you had invested in each and they all seem to be very prediction based it wasn't just i have a good gut feeling about this company or i saw a headline somewhere you seem to be very good at thinking analytically about potential outcomes and then identifying the most probable one do you have a process for that um i I do and I don't. So the, the, I, I, I like to think I have a hell of a lot of common sense and I take opinions of everybody um, on board. I, I never discount anybody. So I guess it's like anti-bigotry, if that makes sense, but to the, to the highest order. So from a political perspective, um, I like to listen to ideas and theories from the left and from the right and from the center ground. I never just discount uh, a theory, whether that be economical or whether that be uh, from an economic standpoint or whether that be immigration or whether that be um, foreign affairs I like to take on board theories and kind of practices from all fractions of the different parties right and rather than just go with the headlines so if we take political predictions for example I think on Twitter I've been right about the last seven events, um, like big events, shall we say. So if we say that was Trump, uh, Macron, um, Biden, two general elections. I can't really remember the other one. But the EU referendum. Yeah, the EU ref- Yeah, Trump, uh, the last few presidential elections, general elections, EU referendum, Macron. Um, and, you know, some of these were good predictions because it was against the, the mainstream of what everyone else was thinking, or it was against the bookmaker odds. Um, but in terms of politics, I, I've always been into politics. I've always quite liked it. Um, I do a lot of reading into politics, and I don't set myself in these echo chambers like a lot of people do. So if, shall we say from a social media perspective, um, you know, a lot of people, if they are a fan of Jeremy Corbyn and the left, they will follow Corbynites, um, people that follow Corbyn and Labour MPs and people from Corbyn's circle but they won't follow people from the Conservative Party. They may follow the Prime Minister just because it's um, a standard account to follow, but they won't follow um, right-wing think tanks or uh, journalists. So, you know, so what I do is I I take on board everyone's perspective and I like to follow a mixture of left-wing commentators, right-wing commentators, middle ground, and I guess seeing their output over the years uh, gives you a very varied... um, 
shall we say, balanced view uh, for sure. So, and then the theory behind that is polling. So polling is very important in politics. Um, polling can be accurate. It, it cannot be. It depends on the, the political system, for example, in the States. It can be off because of the, the way the electoral college works, for example. Um, in the UK, first past the post is easier to poll in a way because you've got very big strongholds. Um, Obviously, if they change the boundaries, that could change a little bit. But yeah, so, so from, from a political perspective, I have friends from different walks of life as well. So my, my friends or colleagues or colleagues I've kept in touch with, former colleagues, I don't really have a set of all my friends are posh, all my friends are poor, all my friends are from a certain place. They're all educated, not educated. They are a very wide mix. Um, so when I talk to people about politics, I get a balanced view as well from my day-to-day bubbles or circles. Um, so, you know, with Brexit, for example, I was living in London at the time, working, I um, can't remember where I was, but working with a lot of young people that were from uh, a lot better off backgrounds than the majority of us from Burnley. And they were all saying, you know, Remain will win. Um, absolutely, it wins, no problem. There's no doubts about it. The media is telling me it will win. Um, I don't know anyone that's voting leave. Then I would go on to my personal social medias, which has a mixture of people from the Northwest, uh, from Burnley in there. And they would say the opposite and say, they're voting leave and nobody else is voting leave. Um, sorry, nobody else is voting remain that they know. Um, so I was like, okay. So I started looking at the polling, doing some little formulas in Excel myself with polls. Um, I was looking at odds movement, um, and then I was, you know, reading into different blogs from different tipsters, um, and yeah, I, I just got to the conclusion that I thought Brexit was going to win. Obviously, it was a lot more advanced than that, and a lot of thinking went into it, um, but I just had this gut feeling about Brexit, and that was kind of the first one. Then with Trump, that was a lot more driven by numbers. Um, Trump, you know, he had so many reasons going for him. He was the unknown, but he was somebody that they have belief in his his charisma, his ability to pull a crowd and command the crowd is his biggest pro, right? I mean, that's what he's incredible at. Mm. I mean, he's a reality TV star, but he's very good at building up a crowd and getting them excited, where I think, you know, Harry Clinton was really the, the best of a very, very bad bunch. And because of her history and her affiliation with governments previously, um, her husband, I... I just think she was a very bad choice. So, you know, you always had this feeling that Trump was going to win. Uh, some people that didn't know politics said to me, you know, they don't have a clue about politics, don't have a clue. They all said they would say to me, yeah, Trump's going to win, definitely going to win. Look at his cries compared to um, Hillary Clinton's. Look at what he says. He's giving them hope and optimism. Clinton was kind of saying, let's have more of the same. Or, you know, um, vote for me because, yeah, he's really bad. She never actually had anything to say policy-wise where Trump had built the wall make America great again I think MAGA as a acronym as a slogan worked very well for him this time around um, it was pretty simple you know Trump people knew what he was who he was they knew that he was way out of his depth um, the people he surrounded himself with so drain the swamp he did drain the swamp to a degree he got rid of a lot of people, but the issue is he kept getting rid of people over and over again. So even the people he was bringing in, he got rid of a hell of a lot of them as well. So Trump could just never create a, an administration that was stable um, in terms of what they achieved, you know, tax cuts, for example. But in terms of did they build the wall? Not really. Um, did he 
kind of deliver on most of his promises, the answer is no, uh, because of coronavirus. I think without coronavirus, Trump would have won again, actually. I think coronavirus is what won it for Biden, because I think Biden was an upgrade on Quentin. He's a little bit more charismatic. He was very popular under Obama, and with the endorsement of Obama, kind of going around saying, this guy served with me, he's kind of going to be me again, if that makes sense. And I think that resonated. But if we look, Biden won easily on electoral votes in the electoral college. But if we look at the margins in the states, he did win. It was only just, it was a lot closer than what I think a lot of people think. Yeah. Um, and I think without coronavirus being a, a thing um, in 2020, I think Trump would have won quite easily, actually. I want to put you on the spot. I know that you haven't taken stock of everything that's going to play into these issues. I know you haven't done your formulas or looking at polls. I want to ask you three questions that popped into my head and have your predictions. And then one day when these three events have happened, here we go. Revisit. <laughs> um, first one, AJ and Fury. Fury. Fury beats AJ every day of the week. What are I your think views on AJ? I saw you call him uh, the bodybuilder on Twitter the other day. That That is what Tyson Fury calls him. Okay. Um, Anthony Joshua has this persona of Mr. Nice Guy. He's very, very well media trained, where Fury is obviously media trained because he's probably had it uh, given to him, forced upon him, but he is very, very genuine. Um, I think, you know, Tyson Fury is a, has been a very divisive figure. Uh, if we go back to like 2017, 18, he made some racist comments. For example, he... Um, had his fight with um, addiction of drugs for, and alcohol. Um, but his comeback fight against Deontay Wilder, uh, Deontay Wilder number two, I think he won a lot, a lot of kind of affection from the general public. Even non-boxing fans were amazed that this guy had gone. Because if you look at his before and afters, you know, he's in Spain or Tenerife, 25 stone, um, drinking, you know, 10 pints, whatever he was doing, um, just partying and, taking drugs and drinking and not carrying the world. Um, super unfit, very overweight. And he came back and beat the, the best kind of heavyweight on the planet in his own backyard in, in Vegas. So, I mean, it's probably the best boxing uh, comeback in history, or certainly one of them. So, um, but yeah, I think Tyson Fury, he has the natural ability. He has the, the drive. Um, and I, I think AJ is not very good at moving his head. He's um, very shall we say, one-dimensional. Tyson Fury ha is very quick for a heavyweight. For a six-foot-nine, kind of 19-stone guy, he, he moves like he shouldn't be that, you know? So, so yeah, I think uh, Tyson Fury wins every day. Will Scotland leave the UK? It depends. When When's the referendum? I just, I, I just have to say, this was really interesting to watch, which people listening aren't going to see this. There was almost a, a micro-process that happened with your facial expression and your eyes there. I, I could see you were really thinking about that. That's so interesting because most people would throw out their opinion. Does that make sense? Like they, they're ingrained to believe yes or they're ingrained to believe no. Even in the half a second between asking that sure. question, that was interesting. <laughs> um, let me ask the next question beforehand then because that might answer your... Okay, sure. Who wins the next general election? In 2024, if, yes. if it was held in... If, if it was held on schedule, yeah. I think the Conservatives will win again, simply because um, I think the Conservatives have to get the economy moving again uh, post-corona. And obviously with the news today that there's a new uh, mutation of corona, let's hope the vaccines work and we can get the vast majority of the people in uh, the vast majority of the country vaccinated. Um, but I think the Tories have to do whatever they whatever it takes to get the economy moving. Um, I think they probably will do that because they have to. Uh, they have no choice, really. Um, so I think if they get the economy moving, 
Uh, they will probably win again. I think Weber have many issues. Uh, Keir Starmer ha- has had his honeymoon period already with his uh, ratings. I believe they're dropping again already. People don't know who he is. They think he's just some posh guy from down London that talks to them. Um, I think a lot of northerners from the north of England uh, view him as, you know, uh, at first it was like he was landing a lot of blows on Johnson. Um, but then in the last few weeks, his rhetoric is just, they just think he's this posh white guy from London that tells Boris off every now and again. Um, I, I think Boris gets a lot of flack for the handling of coronavirus, and I agree he deserves some of that. Um, but I, I think this whole pandemic is very, very uh, tough to deal with. I mean, I hate the word, but it is unprecedented. I mean, even today, they've just told us that southeast london you know london is cancelled you can't do anything um you know people saying why didn't they do this a few days ago that's because they didn't know that this mutation existed so i think sometimes it's very easy for us to say you know tier three for the traffic light system the nando's system they had um you know right and wrong but if we look at if we look at the countries that were getting the praise before you know germany you know germany's doing such a great job was what we were told which they are uh, but then they just had their worst day of deaths ever so every every country is being affected um coronavirus will get you no matter what you do really sweden is used as a model that is right and wrong right and wrong depending on the kind of agenda of the people that are having that conversation really i don't think there's many countries that have done well um other than china south korea um but then that's a different story so so then in either eventuality in the the, the ryan merton prediction world we have a conservative government does Scotland remain or leave? And if that previous question didn't answer the question mark in sure. your mind, what else plays into that? So, so there's not going to be a referendum in 2021. They may, will there be a referendum? I, I think the Holyrood elections are next year, which is the kind of Scottish Assembly uh, elections. The SNP, I think, are on course to win, like quite dramatic, quite easily. Um, again. Um, so I think they then have a mandate to go to Westminster and say, we demand a referendum. I think if a referendum was held today, the SNP wins and Scotland would leave because I believe a lot of Scots believe that the Westminster handling of COVID has been very bad from a Scottish perspective. They feel forgotten about. Um, kind of like the north-south divide in England where a lot of northerners have been in tier three for months and months and London was tier two for the last few weeks. That was very divisive on, on social media and the news, etc. Um, if there's a Scottish referendum later and COVID has gone, 2023, 2024, um, I don't think they will because when you start to get into the conversations about economic policy, for example, currency, um, Scotland struggles to kind of, uh, sorry, pro-leave Scott, Scots struggle to kind of explain it. They think they're going to use the British pound as their currency for a few years. They, you know, one of their predictions for their economics was based on oil prices, which, you know, with the British government, with their mandate of carbon emissions and with Joe Biden's inauguration in January and his agenda with the kind of EU and United Nations, the world is going to accelerate this kind of green agenda so oil is going to certainly devalue even further so i think scotland when the debate gets technical and they start putting economists on stage against each other i think that's when scotland will say no actually i think they prefer to remain a part of the uk because it's this fear of missing out 
I don't think it's big, en- big enough, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think reality kicks in. I think it sounds all great. But then when somebody actually says to the SNP in a debate, you know, how are you going to build an economy? What currency are you going to use? They pretty much get lost with that answer. So Amazing. I, I'm really excited to look no, at No, I'm excited three. to see. Um, let's bring it back to the current day, though, because we've spoken a lot about gambling. Of course, it's been a big part of your professional, personal sure. life. But right now, you're you're outside of the gambling industry. You're currently the director of organic acquisition at Bumble. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Uh, so Bumble is one of the largest dating apps in the world. Um, we are called the Bumble Group, but we also operate another pretty huge dating app called Badoo. Um, both apps are available on iOS, Android, and web. Um, so Bumble is a dating app um, but it also has two other functions which we call bumble biz and bumble bff um, bumble biz allows you to match with potential business partners and mentors and um, other co-founders and there are our businesses on there as well with open roles um, and bumble bff is a friend finder so one of the um, you know if we look at statistics so if we look at kind of loneliness and mental health around the world it is kind of higher than ever, right? Especially in younger people, older people. Um, so one of the fractions is that, one of the ideas is that dating online 10 years ago was seen as this kind of, you know, it wasn't the normal. If you told your grandparents you'd met someone online, uh, they may say, ooh, you've got to be very careful and you shouldn't be doing that. And maybe they'll find it strange. There was a taboo with it. Where now online dating is the number one way in the world that our relationships are made um, in terms of... Um, you know, partnerships. So from a friend perspective, one the idea is to change that taboo to get friends to meet online, which who then become real friends in real life. Because as much as it is hard for people to meet their partners in traditional methods, such as in bars, in workplaces, because people are busier than ever and people don't go out as much, that same taboo is with friends. You know, how do you meet friends? Other than if you have your friends from university or your friends of friends or kind of colleagues, there's then not many other routes to really meet friends, you know, um, joining groups of football groups, not everyone likes a sport, you know, um, so that is what BFF is trying to do. Um, but Bumble is six, seven years old, and Badoo is 13 years old. Uh, Badoo was the first dating app um, before Tinder. And um, yeah, I, I run a small team there, and we look after channels such as SEO, which is search engine optimization, and we do ASO, which is app store optimization. Um, and in there as well is some product marketing and uh, viral flaws. Um, and I lead a small team there, yeah. A lot has changed in the 13 years since Badoo. I always get the two names mixed up. Badoo launched. But probably more has changed in the past nine months when it comes to online dating, when it comes to meeting people online, period. Talk to me about some of the trends that you've seen in your position when it comes to those changes. Um, so we've seen what we've seen in 2020 um, and the kind of in the COVID world is that engagement rates in app are up, uh, basically. So people are using the app for longer. They are more engaged in conversation. People are swiping more. So in, in terms of um, how the COVID world has changed dating, people are not dating in real life. You know, they're not meeting in real life. So that uh, as a U-turn leads naturally to people speaking um online more and in this covid world there has been and still is a lot of loneliness and people have been using dating apps as a, as a way of connection uh, to speak to 
maybe a future partner, but um, you know, uh, just connection in general because a lot of people live by themselves. Even if they don't, they may still feel lonely because they don't get on with their family. And you know, a lot of people have been spending a lot of time with their family or friends if they, if they live with them because of lockdowns, for example. And you know, dating apps have given people that mechanic to kind of a mechanism to get away from the people they do know to talk to people that they don't know and one day may become a real connection do you think that the the taboo that uh, to be honest i probably downloaded tinder for the first time seven years ago and it felt fucking weird i thought what am i doing like i was a young person so probably most pre-exposed to finding it normal but even then i was like this is really strange i think younger people have perhaps grown to understand that online dating is normalized do you think that that's going to bleed more and more into older generations this year because you know through necessity there is no other way to meet new people um i i do yeah i mean i think i think if we look at the dating industry um older people typically have used the more web-based services such as the eHarmonies and match.coms of the kind of uh shall we say back 10 years ago and it would be online and one profile picture maybe two and big surveys about yourself and you know you take these quizzes that say do you like dogs yes uh what kind of dogs now it's very much um with app-based dating it's more you know visual and very quick so you see a profile it has a few buzzwords on there such as you know maybe three of your hobbies along with your eye color and a picture uh, or a few pictures if you scroll obviously um but it, it, it's now a numbers game rather than dwelling on a profile for four hours and deciding do I press like do I send them a message which is what the web-based dating kind of platform was more about now it's more a numbers game I, I guess really but obviously as as our technology allows we try and match you with people that we think are relevant for you so that even though it's a numbers game it, it's you know a case of these are good numbers rather than bad numbers so the algorithms try to match you with people that we think are going to be suitable for you um, whereas you know, in the web-based platforms 10 years ago, it'd be more very much just scroll through this big list of profile pictures and click on who you think looks okay. Um, and then they try to get a bit cleverer with, okay, do this do this 50-question uh, survey and we'll try and match you with other people that answered similar to you. Um, so, yeah, that's... The revolving door theory is something that I find really interesting. Do you, do you know what it is? Uh, yes and no. So it's this idea of if you're in, say, a hotel and there is a revolving door that you exit through, depending on whether you get into the first available pod or the second available pod, you're going to enter that street at a slightly different moment in time, right? And that means that you're going to, uh, in theory, live an entirely different life because you may step into the pod uh, whilst the bus is driving past or you may step into the next pod when the bus is going to hit you is essentially the headline of it. With the revolving door theory... Um, there's this idea that you never quite know what's going to happen. Uh, it's based on almost like happenstance. If you happen to be in a certain place at a certain time, your life will project forward forever in a slightly different way. The work that you're doing with Bumble, with Badoo, which is putting that app higher up search results, which is putting that app higher up in the app store, is essentially a form of that in as much as if you and your team are doing an effective job in any given month and somebody opens the app store and sees your app, they could be downloading that and meeting somebody that they're going to happily marry and have kids and grandkids with. We've spoken about perhaps the second degree negative effect of promoting gambling. 
let's talk for a moment about the the human positive effects of working at Badu. Yes, yes. So, you know, we we have success stories on our sites that show cases of couples that um, have got together because of, of our platforms. So, you know, we, we have on Bumble.com entire success story uh, kind of sections that says, okay, this couple met on Bumble two years ago. Now they're married. Uh, maybe they got married in a very uh, exclusive location abroad uh, you know they had a very kind of dreamy holiday um a dreamy wedding in a, in a great location uh and then we get success stories that are later than that it says uh this couple met there just announced their first pregnancy um so yeah we we it is great to kind of bumble and badoo have the power to create you know powerful connections through through technology which is what our aim is really um and i think it we genuinely do make a difference in the world because every day we are creating meaningful connections and eventually those people could go on um to get together live together have a family together um so definitely feels rewarding at times for sure and my last question i'm asking this for purely selfish reasons <laughs> you work in the online dating industry yeah i am somebody who has the either the worst luck or the worst patience the jury's still out on that one when it comes to bothering with and finding success from online dating apps namely tinder but i've, I've tried a bunch of others right do you have any advice for what makes a good dating profile um a good dating profile is you have to honesty is and transparency so um you know if we say a typical instagram influencer you know, makes everything look very, very nice. Um, try not to do that on your dating profile. Don't choose pictures only of where you look good or where you have certain friends with you. Um, try to be genuine because when you meet up, that person will see straight through you anyway. So, um, you know, it, it avoids the, you know, dating is, um, can be fun and it is fun, but it can, it can be sometimes quite, uh, draining if it doesn't go anywhere if you spend months with somebody whether in a bit of a relationship or not or just chatting and then all of a sudden after a few months you decide let's just end it because it didn't work out um a lot of that comes down to um a lot of examples i've seen in real life of friends is that it's like you weren't what i thought you were kind of that kind of cliche and uh, that's why i think it's better to be honest and transparent from the off so if you are quite an independent person um and you're not you don't have a lot of money don't show on your profile that you do have a lot of money and that you're spending a lot of time and you know money on in places that are exclusive and only for the elites because that doesn't work i think um people like honesty and transparency and that does work well on dating platforms so amazing um, uh, if anybody wants to go and learn more about you, hear your thoughts, see your predictions, where can they head to? Uh, Twitter, which is at Ryan underscore Merton, M-U-R-T-O-N. They can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and that's it, really. Amazing. Ryan, thank you so much. I really enjoyed for, this. Thanks for having me. Cheers.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.